I hope everybody got a good night's sleep. I stayed up way past my bedtime last night. Y'all kept me up here with that pizza. I'm usually in bed by 8.30 at night. So uh, it was a long night for us. I'm so grateful that you're back with us this morning. I pray the Lord will bless us in our time of study. If you'd take your bulletin and turn to the second hymn in it, uh, we'll stand together and we'll sing our call to worship. Okay. Unto the Lord this sinner owed a debt he could not pay. My sins were such an awful load, but Christ put them away. But Christ put them away. His blood has washed away my shame and satisfaction made. Who oh, bless the dear Redeemer's name, my ransom price is paid. My ransom price is paid. Salvation unto Christ I owe, O what a gracious friend. He washed and made me white as snow, on him my hopes depend. On him my hopes depend. Someday in heaven I'll sing his praise with all the ransom throng. And joyfully my voice I'll raise to sing redemption song. To sing redemption song. Yeah, you see it? Well, I tell you what, I could get spoiled to having this many people sitting in front of me. <laughs> it's so good to be back with you today. If you would take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We want to begin in verse 23 of John chapter 2. And read down through John chapter 3, verse 8, before we go to the Lord in prayer. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, 
Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, or whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and bless us this morning in our time of worship. Donald, would you lead us in an opening prayer, please, sir? It's so good to be back uh, with you again today. It's a, like I said last night, the thing that's always so troubling about these Bible conferences is when we get done today, we're closer to the end than we were uh, to the, at the beginning. It just passes by so quickly. But I wanted to, first of all, uh, thank uh, the brethren of Grace Baptist for all that you've done in preparation for this, all the help that you've given us to get everything in place to where we could have this conference. But also I wanted to extend a special thanks and a warm welcome to the ones that have come in. I, I, I'd give awards, but, uh, you know, we don't give awards anymore. But, it, you know, it, I remember when we were back in false religion on Mother's Day, you know, you gave a rogues for the oldest mother and the youngest mother and the mother with the most children and this and that and other. If we got to, got to furthest travel, I think it would go to David, Elaine, and Bell and Rachel for traveling to be with us from Ontario, Canada. But we're grateful to have them with us grateful to have Terry Danita down from Ashland. I had the privilege of getting to meet them many years ago when Bill and Debbie were up in Ashland. Good to have them. Good to have uh, Bob Higby and his son Daniel with us from up in outside of St. Louis. I don't know exactly where to tell. But then the boys came back again. Tim, good to have you and your brother Matt, David, and John, and Emily. Did I get all that right? Okay. Look at that. <laughs> I, I had to think about it. I don't have it written down either. So. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean if you ask me later, I'll probably come up to y'all later and might forget your names again because that's kind of typical. But it is so good to be back with you uh, this morning. Uh, Bill's going to preach to us in the first hour, and we'll take a break. We do have coffee and donuts in the back, and hopefully the guy that I hired to fire the fish will show up. In the second hour, because Sally asked me back in the back, she said, do you have, no, it was Brenda Kay asked me, she said, when's the guy going to be here? I said, when he gets here. And she kind of <laughs> frowned at me like, uh, I hired the guy, so if he don't show up, I'm the one that the rocks come at, okay? So, but he's supposed to show up. I told him that we needed the fish ready to be uh, eight between 12.15, 12.30. So, Gary, you've got a little extra time there, so. <laughs> Okay, I I don't even have to introduce Bill. Everybody everybody that's a member of Grace Baptist and anybody that's that knows any of us for any amount of time 
uh, you know Bill, you know Gary, you know me, you know all these guys that preach the gospel. But I, Bill and Gary are both dear friends, and I'm so thankful that they gave their time to be up here and uh, be with us and preach the gospel. So, Bill, you come preach to us and close as you see fit. Well, it's again good to be with you and an honor to be here to preach the gospel of God's grace in Christ. One of the things that I'm learning as I do get older is, uh, is you experience the infirmities of the flesh, the weaknesses, that it does help you to learn to hate sin more because I realize that what you go through in these infirmities is the result of sin. And I was thinking about that this morning because of this message. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the natural man and the new birth. The title of the message is, What is in Man? What is in man? And I always think about that verse in Romans 8 and verse 10 where it says, The body is dead because of sin, speaking of our physical bodies. Uh, one old preacher of the past, I can't remember who, he said, I'm, I preach as a dying man to dying men. And that includes you women, too. That's, uh, so uh, that's what we are. And the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And that's, you could just say, the spirit is life because of Christ, because he is our righteousness. Well, in, uh, in salvation, you know, salvation is a multifaceted thing. Uh, there, there's eternal issues, there's uh, legal issues, spiritual issues, providential. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a big subject. And uh, when I think about what is necessary for the salvation of a sinner, and I think about the legal aspect of it, that's our justification before God. And justification is a legal matter. There are legal issues because God is holy. He's a righteous God, and he cannot, he cannot deny himself in order to save a sinner. He must be righteous. He must remain holy in the salvation of his people. And so there are legal obstacles that must be removed, and uh, they're removed by his grace through the righteousness of Christ. And that's his righteousness imputed. And then salvation involves some spiritual issues, too, because of what Christ says here in this passage. Look at John chapter 2 and verse 23. It says, Christ was in Jerusalem, John 2, 23, at the Passover, in the feast day. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles where he did, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all. He knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And that's where I got the title, What is in Man? Well, that's, that speaks to the spiritual issue of what is necessary to save a sinner. And, of course, that's followed up in chapter 3 with the fact that we need to be born again. And why is that? Because spiritually speaking, by nature, we're dead. Spiritual death. Dead in trespasses and sins. As I said, the body is dead. That's a physical body, but the spirit. Man, 
fell in Adam into a state of spiritual death and depravity. And the new birth is necessary. You must be born again. People talk about the, the issues of imputation and impartation. And a lot of people get those mixed up. And, and really we shouldn't. I mean, we, we should train ourselves, you know, in the word of God. Uh, imputation. It's, it's, a lot of time, it's a legal term. It's an accounting term. Uh, this generation today ought to know something about imputation because I guarantee you just about every one of you have a credit card. When you go out and you buy something on a credit card, that debt is imputed to you. It's charged to you. And that's real. That's not fake, is it? You've got to pay it back. And so that's, sin runs up a debt. That, that, that's charged against God's people in Christ, our sins really are imputed to Christ, not to us personally, but to Christ. And so he paid the debt. And that's what's imputed. That's righteousness imputed. But now righteousness is not imparted. Imparted has to do with something that is infused in, by way of knowledge. And that's what, that's what the new birth is. Spiritual life is imparted. Spiritual knowledge is imparted. That's something that's in you, that you understand, that you know, and you respond to, faith, and all of that. So both are necessary for salvation. One is the ground, the other is the fruit. Simple as that. Righteousness imputed is the ground, and the life, spiritual life imparted is the fruit. Well, why do we need to be born again? Well, this, this tells us. Because apart from being born again, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We don't have spiritual eyes to see the reality of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God in Christ. Uh, unless we're born again, we cannot hear spiritually. We have ears to hear. You can hear what a person says in preaching the gospel, but you can't appreciate it. You can't value it. You can't know it unto salvation. So that's what this is all about. So here's Christ in Jerusalem at the Passover. And, then you, of course, you know the Passover is a great picture of Christ, the Passover lamb. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you, God said. And, for, and it says many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, from the next two verses, we know that their believing in Christ was merely the faith of miracles. Believing in him, not as Savior, not as Lord, not as surety or substitute or redeemer, not as the Lord their righteousness, but simply believing as Nicodemus expressed. Look down at chapter 3 and verse 2. Here's Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And it says, the same Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher sent from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, Nicodemus did not believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah at this time, as the Savior. But he recognized that because of the miracles, that he had to be somebody sent from God. Nobody could do these things unless God sent them. And that's what these people up here that, that are described as they believed in his name when they saw the miracles, that's how they believed. They looked to him as one who was sent from God 
to do miracles. So when it says in verse 24 or verse 23 that many believed in his name, he's not talking about the gift of faith that comes from God in the new birth where he gives his people a new heart, a new knowledge that brings a sinner to Christ for salvation, for forgiveness, for righteousness. You see, faith, saving faith, does not come by miracles, believing in miracles. It comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The scripture says that, Romans 10, 17. It's the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit that brings sinners to Christ, not miracles. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But it says in verse 24 that Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all. He knew all men. Now that word translated commit there is the same word translated believed in the prior verse. So they, cl- they claim to believe in Christ, but only because of the miracles, not because of any conviction of their sins or their need of a Savior from their sins not from, uh, from their need of a righteousness, their need of life that only comes to a sinner by God's grace and from the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ didn't believe in them. <laughs> he didn't commit himself to them. He had no faith in their faith. And one thing we can be assured of is this. <clears throat> Christ is fully committed to his people. And his people are committed to him. He he said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And and I think about the Apostle Paul when he, that great statement of faith in 2 Timothy 1.12, where he said that I know whom I have believed and and I'm persuaded that, uh, that, uh, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And I think about what have I committed to Christ? I've committed unto him my whole salvation, every part of it, everything about it, every blessing of it, every every benefit is committed to Christ. It's in his hands. Well, it says here that Christ knew all men. The Bible tells us that only God truly knows all people in the very heart of hearts, and that he alone knows the true hearts of all people. I think about Solomon in his prayer at the dedication of the temple. He stated this truth. He said, For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. And it says in verse 25, He needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So to say that Christ knew all men and that he knew what was in man, is an affirmation that he's not only man without sin, he's also God manifest in the flesh. He knew their hearts. And we need to make a distinction in what kind of knowledge this is. This means, this means he's not only cognizant of who they are, he knew who they were, and what they've done, what they're doing, what they will do. He knew their hearts. He knew their thoughts. He knew their motives. He knew their goals. 
The Bible says that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? That thought that just went through your mind. God knows it. I don't know it. I don't know what you're thinking right now. I think most of you have a pleasant look on your face, so I, think, I hope it's positive. But I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't read your mind. But God can. And God knows his elect in sovereign grace, redeeming grace, and regenerating grace. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. He knows his people. So the question comes, what is in man? Christ knows, but by nature we don't know. Man really does not even know what's in himself. I think about that passage in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't even know our own hearts. And the only way we can know ourselves is by the word of God revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit to show us who we are. And what does the Bible say about us naturally? Well, that we fell in Adam into a state of sin and death. We're born spiritually dead, spiritually depraved. We have no spiritual life. What is the spirit? Well, the spirit is our heart, our mind, our affections, our wills, our motives, our conscience, the inner man, our goals, all of these things. But being dead spiritually means that we have no knowledge of our, or desire for the things that glorify God, especially in the matter of salvation. What is in man? And the thing that we have to understand from God's word is the necessity of the new birth changes us. It really does. It brings forth a miraculous change by the power of God that man by nature of his own works and will is incapable of. Look at John chapter 1, just a page back. <clears throat> and speaking of Christ being the light who's come into the world, it says in John 1 and verse 11 that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Some commentators say that's referring to his own nation, and it could. He came to the, his nation as the Jews, and they received him not. But it's, it's descriptive of all of us by nature. If left to ourselves, we would not receive the Son of God. We would not believe in Christ savingly. So he came into his own, and his own received him not. Verse 12 says, but as many as received him. You mean there are some who received him? Yes, believed in him, rested in him, knew him. It says, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Now that word power there is not ability. It's, it means the right, the privilege. In other words, if I claim to be a child of God, what right do I have to make that claim? That's, what, that's the context of this. What right do you have to claim to be a child of God, a sinner saved by grace? Well, it's to those who received him, who believe in Christ. 
even to them who believe on his name, and look at verse 13, which were born. And he says, not of blood. In other words, it wasn't natural birth. It wasn't your physical pedigree that made you a child of God. Nor of the will of the flesh, and I believe that means the works of the flesh. It wasn't by the works of the flesh that you have that right to be called a child of God. And it says, nor of the will of man. It wasn't because of your choice or your decision or some kind of a free will decision that gives you the right to be a child of God. But you were born literally of God, born from above. Now, why is that necessary? Well, what's in man? Spiritual death, depravity, pride, self-righteousness. That's in man by nature. That's what we are by nature. What's in man? An evil heart of unbelief, deception, ignorance. What is in man? A hatred of the true gospel. Look across the page at John chapter 3 in verse 19. And hatred of the gospel now, hatred of Christ, can come in many different forms now. It doesn't mean that everybody who hears the gospel and doesn't believe it, they're going to pick up stones to throw at the preacher. It can be just casting it off, turning a deaf ear to it. And he says here in verse 19 of John 3, he says, This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. That's what's in man, a love of darkness rather than light. And what is it about light that they hate and darkness that they love? It says because their deeds were evil. Now those deeds are those which men and women by nature highly esteem as recommending them to God. It's like the Apostle Paul spoke of his past life before the new birth. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a uh, a Pharisee, uh, uh, touching the law of Pharisee, unblameable in the eyes of men, which he thought all those things were accepted by God, recommended him unto God. But the gospel message of how God saves sinners by his grace through the blood of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, exposes all of those deeds to be an actual abomination in God's sight. To be evil. And why are they evil? It's not because they're immoral in the eyes of men. It's not because people are insincere in doing them. It's because they fail to glorify God. They don't glorify God. Salvation by the works and the wills of sinners dishonors God. Because God says that salvation is by his grace all conditioned on Christ. They're evil because they deny the person and work of Christ. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.21, he said, If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you could be saved by your works, then why did Christ come? 
to do that great work. If you can attain righteousness by your deeds, then why did he come? So to think that you can attain such things by your works is a denial of him. They're evil because they exalt the sinner. They give us room to glory. And God has worked this thing out so that we cannot glory in anything except Christ and his cross. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That he that glorieth glory in the Lord. We rejoice in Christ, which means we glory in Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. So he goes on, verse 20. He says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Men and women by nature will avoid the message that continually tells them that their deeds are evil and that their only hope is the deeds of Christ, the obedience unto death of Christ, his righteousness imputed. And anything less is dishonoring to God. Anything less is evil in the sight of God. He goes on in verse 21, but he that doeth truth. Now, what is it to do truth? It's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to follow him. Now, here he's talking about a born-again person. Doeth truth, cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. They're the work of God. It's like Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, not because of good works, but unto good works, which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. And he says, this is the glory of God. All of this, you know, one of the main problems with modern popular Christianity is that it denies what God reveals about us. It denies what is in man by nature. It tells us there's a spark of goodness, a, a, a retaining of the image of God, that if we can just get some powerful preacher to fan that flame and blow it up into a fire, we can get you down the aisle and into the baptistry and call you a Christian. That is so dishonoring to God. That's an abomination. The idea of conditional salvation. That's the, that's the one thing that all false religions have in common. That salvation, whatever they call salvation, is at some stage, in some way, to some degree, conditioned on what you do or what you decide. And what sets the gospel apart from that? The gospel tells us that all of salvation, every part of it, is conditioned on Christ, and he fulfilled those conditions and secured the entire complete salvation of all for whom he lived and died, was buried, and arose again. Even our new birth the redemptive work of Christ is our salvation. Thinking that we're justified, not by what Christ finished, but by what God enables us to do. 
That's a common theme of false Christianity. You've heard of the term decisional regeneration. It's not in man to make the right decision when it comes to salvation. The Bible says there's none righteous, there's none good, there's none that seeketh after God. Who's he describing there? All of us by nature. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. You and I, if we believe the gospel, if we know the true and living God through Christ, if we rest in him, we do not do so because we're better, wiser, or more righteous than anyone else. Agreed? Because God's, God sovereignly, powerfully, and graciously intervened in our lives and drew us to him by giving us spiritual life, a new heart. Oh, we, Gary read about it last, last night when he talks about how no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. And this is the Father's will, that of all that, that he had learned of him, hearing of him, learning of the Father, come to Christ. No, that evil heart of unbelief has to be replaced by a heart purified by the blood of Christ, given the faith to believe and a love of the truth. And it takes the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth and conviction to show us the reality of what we are, what is in us. It's not in me to believe God. But God, the Holy Spirit, has put that within me, literally by the knowledge that comes to, to a sinner by the preaching of the gospel. And so that, that word is written on our hearts. Ezekiel spoke of it. Jeremiah spoke of it. God said, I'll give them a new heart, a new spirit. I'll draw them unto myself. And that's what God does for his people. You know, when we, when we look at this issue of salvation... Don't we stand amazed that God has been so gracious to us? Because everything that we attain or obtain, let's say that, not attain because we don't attain it by our works, but everything that we obtain and possess that comes to us by way of blessings and benefits and eternal life and everything involved, that we didn't earn one speck of it. And we don't deserve one part of it. It's all of grace. And yet God has showered us with so many blessings. So much of what Christ has come to accomplish, given us freely. I, I love that verse in 1 Corinthians 2, 12, Gary. The things that are freely given. I think about the woman at the well. Remember Christ said, if you only knew the gift of God, that's what we don't know by nature, the gift of God. Because we think that salvation in some way or some part has to be earned by us, has to be deserved by us. And it's not in us. It's not in man to know what's freely given until God the Holy Spirit comes and changes our hearts in the new birth. You must be born again. Well, that's... 
I hope that's uh, helped you a little bit to understand this change. You know, some people, when they talk about the change, they go to outward reformations of character and conduct and all that, but they don't even come close to speaking of that inner change of heart and mind and will that brings a sinner to Christ for all salvation. Okay. Okay, uh, it is. Oh, good Lord. You got 20 minutes to eat donuts and drink coffee. So we're dismissed. Uh, you can go to the back and we'll, we'll gather back up here right at 11 o'clock, start the second service. So.
Okay, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. I'm going to begin at verse 17 and read down through the end of this chapter before we go to the Lord in prayer. Isaiah 45, verse 17. Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together you that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there's no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There's none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there's none else. I have sworn by myself, The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Kenny, would you lead us in opening prayer, please? Father in heaven, again, we're thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to be back here to meet with each brother in a like precious fellowship. Thank you, Father, for this gospel for our king's salvation, of which we have been partner life in producing and on maintaining, Father. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, guide Gary as he is back here this next record, that you would uh, give him the words to say, that, uh, Lord, that you give us open ears, receptive hearts to understand. Pray, Father, that everything that's done here at Grace Church will be for your glory, your glory alone, to be the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to turn it over to Gary, and Gary will preach, and when Gary gets done, we'll uh, have a word of prayer for the food in the back, and then we'll go to the back, and hopefully the fish will be ready. So, Gary, you come preach to us as the Lord directs. I cannot express to you my delight, my utter delight and joy in being here. And it's not to preach, (laughs) but it's to be preached to 
is to have fellowship with those, as Brother Kenny said, of like precious faith and see the Lord's work and hear of it in every part by those who come and are recipients of his sovereign grace and mercy. I want you to turn this morning for a few minutes to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, the last chapter, chapter 31. Proverbs 31. And I'll read to you about the first seven verses. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. What, my son, and what, the son of my womb, and what, the son of my vows, give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink, and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. The title of my message is Strong Drink and Wine. As we can see in the opening statements of this chapter, these are words of instruction given to Solomon. And in them she warns of the dangers of too much wine, too much strong drink for the individual and especially a king. She tells him in that it's not good for a king to be lacking moderation because if he's drunk, he might not make a right judgment among the inflicted. But contrary to what many individuals and religions teach, the use of strong drink or wine is not totally forbidden in Scripture. I grew up under that solemn covenant wherein you swore that you were not to drink any alcoholic beverage. But it is not forbidden in Scripture. But moderation is always commanded, and drunkenness is always forbidden. We have many warnings in Scripture. 
Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink and continue until night till wine inflame them. That's a warning. Proverbs 20, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And then we have Ephesians 5, 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. But it's undoubtedly plain if we read the Scripture that wine was a common drink in Israel. Many countries today, I've always said sin is regional in the eyes of men. It's geographical. In other words, if you're living in California, it's all right to drink wine, but it's not right to smoke. It's a sin. But if you're living where I live, where it was a great state of tobacco, North Carolina, it's, it's a sin to drink wine, but it's not a sin to smoke. But the only way we know sin is by what God says is sin. And he evidently, by what he did, Christ and his disciples drank wine, and he used it when he instituted the Lord's table. And his first miracle in Canaan involved wine. And the Pharisees said that John the Baptist had a devil because he did not drink wine, but they called the sinless Christ a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber because he did. You can't win with man. And rather than abuse strong drink and wine, the king is instructed to use his obvious abundance of it. You talk about a wine cellar. I'm sure Solomon had the very biggest and best. But she warns him that rather to than abuse it, but he was to use it to help men who are in desperate situations and in desperate conditions. She tells him in verse 6, give strong drink to them unto him that's ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy heart. Use it wisely. Give it to these people. But in reality, this is really spiritual instruction. This is God telling his people, especially his servants, to do something. It's a spiritual command. And the strong drink and wine here has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's represented, it's typified by strong drink and wine. And the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is often spoken of in these terms. It's that wine that cheereth God and man. Think about that. has to be more than just liquid. He says this gospel is like wine in that it cheers God and man. It suits man as he is. It suits God as he is. Amazing. It is the wisdom of God. It honors God and it saves men. It's wine that maketh glad the heart of man and all to make his face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. It's the gospel of Christ crucified. It's that message that God has ordained for old eternity so that it's called the everlasting gospel. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 54 for a moment. I mean, Isaiah chapter 25. In Isaiah chapter 25, he tells us of Zion. He says in verse 6, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, and of fat things full of marrow, and of wines on the lees, well refined. God says, I'm going to make a feast. I'm going to serve to this people the best wine. I'm going to deal with them in this gracious way. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall be to take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. And it shall be in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in salvation. This gospel is glad tidings. It's wine that maketh glad the heart of man and the heart of God. And it's like, it seems like, it seems like as with wine, God has saved the best for the last. In other words, that was the claim in John 2. It says, and every man, and he saith unto them, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when they have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. We've had the gospel since Adam in the garden. We've had it all down through the ages, the mercy of God, these glad tidings to a people. But in these last days, the host of the feast has come. The Lord has given the best wine for the last. He's given us 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, the true vine. And he says to us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But there's a character and a condition to those for whom it was designed. Look at what he says here. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. And wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Now these brethren will tell you, we've got no gospel for most people. They're as satisfied with what they've got. They're as content to go out and meet God in their self-righteousness. They're as blind in their religion. They're typified in Matthew chapter 7. They say, we've done many good works in your name. We've preached in your name. We've cast out devils in your name. We love what we've got. We don't need anything. We're a savor of death unto them. <laughs> when we open this bottle, this gospel bottle, and begin to pour out this wine, this strong drink, it's a savor of death to so many. But it is to these who are ready to perish, to these whom God has made heavy of heart, bitter of soul, that he makes not only wanting, but needing to receive it. That is, when the Spirit of God comes to us in that spirit of conviction, and he makes us to know ourselves and to see ourselves as in ourselves perishing. <laughs> Just hopeless. Helpless sick of sin, guilty of conscience, fearful of impending judgment, and the wrath of God because of our sin, without hope, without strength, without a righteousness that God will accept. That's who I'm looking for. I'm looking for some sinners. I'm looking for some folks that are needy who have nothing by which to stand before God and be accepted. And because of these, these spiritual things, this bitterness of soul, this sadness, that gloominess, that burden, that afflicted, that felt poverty, that faintness, these needy sinners, I've got something for you. I think about those to whom Christ came. He walked out on the ship 
into the Isle of Gadara, I believe it was. And he met a maniac, a raging madman. So, so far gone, as we say. So, so dead in himself. So bound by the devil. So, so wretched. So naked and so dangerous to everybody. But that's who he was looking for. And he poured in strong drinking wine because he was ready to perish. I think about that woman at the well. The Bible says that he had a need to go through Samaria. What, what for? To meet a woman who was living in adultery, living in fornication, a woman who was ashamed to even come to the well at the proper time because the other women would look for her and mock her and such as that, and who didn't have a husband who had already five husbands. But that's who he was looking for. And he poured in strong drink and wine. He told her the truth. He revealed to her who he was. I think about that old publican who smote himself upon his breast, who said, God have mercy on me to the sinner who went down to his house justified. That's who God saves. Or maybe on the other hand, a man like Paul, so self-righteous, so, so, so bound up in his deception and so, so proud of who he was and, and so learned of old uh, Bible things and so taught by man. And God unhorsed him and told him just exactly who he was. How do you know he told him who he was? Because said, Paul said, I was before. A blasphemer. That's always amazes me. That's what the Lord had to bring me to. To acknowledge, to confess that what I was before as a moral person, as that boy raised up in Sunday school, as that, as that man who had, had not committed adultery on his wife, as that man who stood in the pulpit and was preaching in God's name, I was before a blasphemer. That's pretty strong when God pours that in your heart. You mean that all I've done for God? You mean it counted for nothing? Yes, it counted for sin. That which is highly esteemed among men, it's an abomination to God. I talked to a man earlier in the week, big, burly Marine, retired Marine, decorated Marine, strong, his, his whole body pretty much covered with tattoos. And as I talked to him, and he began to ask me questions, and I'd answer him in a, 
uh, every question he had, I'd answer him with the Bible. I'd tell him what the Bible says. And every time, he I won't tell you what he was said, but it was, dang. Are you kidding me? I never heard that before. Something else. I'd tell him, dang. You kidding me? I eat say a little stronger than that something. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This ain't what the other preachers have been telling me. This ain't this ain't the stuff that they've been telling me about living my life and and being a better Christian and all this stuff. This is about God. This is about what God's done. This is about the the living sovereign God. Dang. This ain't no wimpy gospel. This is the hard truth of the absolute sovereign God with whom we have to do. And we're looking for sinners in a desperate condition, made so by the Spirit of God, like that man who was fell among thieves on the road to Jericho. And all these other people are walking by him, and this priest and this Levite, and they, they're walking on the side of the road. But this Samaritan, who's a picture of Christ, who's the true good Samaritan, that's exactly who he was looking at. And he went to him, and what? He poured in oil and wine. That's what every sinner Every sinner that God saves, that's what he does. And he brings them in this neediness to see their unrighteousness. This is who the gospel is for, sinners, the ungodly, the unrighteous, the lost, left worse by every man-made remedy and religion. Like that woman who had an issue of blood, what happened? She'd spent all. She'd been to them all. And there's so many people like that. That religion has left a wreck who's either left them, it, it leaves them either in self-righteousness or despair. Some despair after God deals with them of their self-righteousness. Some, God deals with them in their, their despair and their utter depravity and, and sin, the blatant immorality and, and the, the, the self-righteousness. It's all sin. It takes strong drinking wine. And when God brings them, you know, as preachers, we ought to be encouraged. This gospel is strong drinking wine. If you turn over, over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at what it says in 1 Corinthians. Paul, God sent Paul to Corinth. And if the truth was known, Corinth may have been an utterly 
just a much more awful place than New York City or San Francisco. Everything there, every sin, every blatant immorality, Sodom and Gomorrah. It was so bad that Paul was afraid. But the Lord came to him in the night And he said, Paul, you stand up, you preach, for I have much people in this city. You and I don't know where God's people are. We can't imagine the state that some of them are in. But if he sends the gospel there, it's for a purpose. It's not to save everybody. It's not to convert them all to moral people. The gospel is to call out his sheep. He's bringing them to a state of desperation, conviction of their sin. He's going to make them to be needy and thirsty and hungering after this righteousness. And we're there to pour it in. Listen to what Paul says as he speaks, writing to these believers at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 Know ye therefore that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. Don't you know that none of these people going to inherit the kingdom of God. But look at that next verse. And such were some of you. (laughs) That always amazes me. He gives all this list of all these things that we shriek out and we we draw back at and we say, oh, abusers of themselves with mankind, homosexuality was there, bestiality, everything you can imagine was in that catalog at Corinth, like maybe Amsterdam where you get everything you want. But God had brought some of them poor sinners to their knees. Just like Paul, he had unhorsed them. And when Paul came on the scene preaching the gospel to those crowds in Corinth, wherever they were and however big they were or however small they were, the Lord mightily, powerfully used that gospel to reveal to him the the Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation by grace. And he now states them as those who are no longer those things and such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Sovereign grace is the only grace there is. And a sovereign God, as as Richard read in the reading, he's the 
He's the only God there is. <laughs> We're not intruding on people. We're bringing his people the message through all of the things that are opposing it and all the things that are against it and all the powers of Satan that rise up against it and all the natural uh, all the natural resistance that that Bill spoke of uh, in our hearts resisting it but this is strong Greek somebody said that a certain kind of moonshine would wake the dead well I don't know about that but I do know about this gospel It'll wake the dead. God will use it to wake the dead. To the dead spiritually. To the dead to God. To, the, to this natural man that receives not the things of God. To this resistance and this rebellion. It's described, this gospel is described as strong drinking wine. Not just either. It's not just strong drink. It's not just wine. It's both shocking and soothing. I remember seeing a fellow in my young years drinks a take a sip of some moonshine <laughs> mixed with orange juice. I mean the real stuff. And he took that big jar and he drank it down drank a big swallow of it and he gasped and he 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 just about fell down and he, he looked like he was on fire and then he said whoo that was good <laughs> but you know that's kind of the way the gospel is it's shocking but it's soothing it wakes us from our deadness. God uses it to wake us from our deadness. He uses it to bring us to life. He uses it to quicken our minds. He, he uses it to do all these things. And when he has revealed himself to us and taught us the grace of God and free salvation, oh, it's a soothing thing. It's a soothing thing. But God says, I kill and make alive. How many cures are first destructive and painful and harsh at the first? The gospel is at the first strong drink. We're not, because we're not just disoriented, we're lost. You mean I'm lost? You're lost. We tell people that they are by nature God-haters. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Oh, that's so shocking. We hear that there is none righteous, no, not one. That there are none good, none that seek God, that we're blind, that we're lame, we're leprous, we're vile. We're unacceptable in ourselves to the, to the divine holiness. We're not just sick, we're dead. Graveyard dead, 
spiritually. These preachers stand up before people and they give them spoonfuls of Kool-Aid. Make you feel good in the flesh. Make you make you satisfied with your experience. Make you make you happy on your way to hell. But I'm telling you, the gospel is strong drink. It's about God. It's about man as He is. I'll never forget. Brother Mahan had that message, and it turned, they turned it into a track. What is it to preach the gospel? Tell the truth about God. Tell the truth about man. It's to tell the truth about Jesus Christ and his word. It's to tell the truth about how God saves sinners. And to the lost man, whether religious or irreligious, it's shocking. Oh, that's why the gospel is so widely refused in our day. It's strong dream. It's about an eternal salvation. You get to talk about salvation before time. You get to talk about what God did before time. That's just a little too much for most. You get to talking about the gospel of God. You talk about the true and the living God as he is. You tell men that salvation didn't come from man, that it doesn't glorify man, that it is not accomplished by man, that it is an absolutely free gift, that it is a work of God wrought in Jesus Christ, that it's by and in one outside of ourselves. That is a salvation that's accomplished. That it's through him alone. That it's his work alone. That it's his blood alone. That it's his his righteousness. He had a cup to drink of that which no other could drink. A drink which he alone could drink. And that was the cup of divine wrath for our sin. That's what he said. I have a cup to drink that you can't drink. That's one cup that we couldn't drink. The cup of divine wrath. God said, I've I've already made the wine red. The wine red and the, the symbolism there is that God... His judgment, rather than being something contrary to him, is something that he does as God. He'll be just in his damnation of the non-elect as he is of the salvation of the elect. But he drank that cup dry. You mean to tell me that what one man did over 2,000 years ago on that cross put an end to all the sins of his people forever, even those that came after him, 
even those sins that come after they supposedly believe, you mean to tell me that salvation is already accomplished, finished, that it's a done deal? That's exactly what I'm telling you. You mean to tell me that there's nothing left for me to do? That's exactly what I'm telling you. And to proud human flesh, that's strong drink. But when God teaches us what we are, when he reveals us, just like the light you were talking about, I thought about how when you open the door of like an old woodshed that's been behind the house for hundreds of years untouched, and you open that door and the light begins to, to uh, permeate that darkness that's there, and it shows every old spider and snake and every old dusty thing. That's the way we are. I'm a good person. No, you're not. But the only way you'll ever know it, if God applies this strong drink to you, this gospel, and he uses his word to show you and give you a mirror to see exactly what you are. He doesn't do it totally. If he were to show me what I am in myself... Totally, all at one time. It just killed me. The wickedness, the vileness, the motives. I don't even want to think about it. I want something that'll soothe me. <laughs> and a strange, strong drink that does that. The gospel of Christ's shed blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant of God's grace, Christ's atoning blood that alone pleased God. This is the only gospel that can cheer God and man. This is the gospel that honors God in his character, satisfies his justice, saves us all from our sins, and gives to him all the glory. She said, give strong drink to them, unto him that's ready to perish. I remember reading one time about how they teach lifeguards oftentimes. When men or women, or children, when they're out there floundering and such in the sea, drowning. They come up, and, and they're still floundering and all. They say, wait until they give up. And then lay hold of them and bring them to shore. When God saves a sinner, he has to bring us to the end of our sake. Paul, a man in our church, he said, and he says it often, he said, I found out there's no hope for me but this. <laughs> Ain't no other hope for a sinner like me but free grace. Christ crucified, that's the only way my sin could ever be put up. 
You can't die for me because you're a sinner, just like me. I can't die for you because I'm a sinner. But the Son of God can come in human flesh and die. Die as our substitute. But in the next verse, those are told what to do. <laughs> he says, let him drink. That's simply trust, believe, rely on Christ alone. Drink this strong drink. Drink this wine. Believe on Christ Believe the gospel which none can do without the Spirit giving them life and faith. Drink it. The illustrations that God uses in regard to faith, they're all in this flesh just effortless. As a matter of fact, they're a ceasing from effort efforts Christ is his people's Sabbath what happened in the Sabbath God ceased from his works he just stopped and that's what we do when we believe Christ as those ready to perish when we drink of Christ we just cease from our own work our own efforts to save ourselves. Cease from all the actions of religion. Cease from all works of self-righteousness. And we just rest. Boy, that's strong drink for most folks. They say, well, you, you, you need to, we need to be doing something. Yeah, we need to be resting. He said labor to enter in that rest. It's an amazing thing that regardless of what's going on in this world or regardless of whatever's going on in my family situation life, and there's always something going on in that. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. But in the midst of it all, we just can still rest. It's God that sent it. And we have nothing to fear. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Christ has finished the work. What's left to do after something's finished? Rest. Rest. Let him rest. And let him forget his poverty. Humanly speaking, sometimes it's hard for me to forget my poverty when the bills start coming in, you know. But everyone in Christ is absolutely rich. Well, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. You're rich, Richard. 
rich. We walk around sometimes like poor little pitiful Christians. We don't have anything because because uh, we don't have all these things of the world. And all. no, we're rich, rich in grace, the riches of grace. That's the only riches, true riches. They are. There are. An inheritance un, uh, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in the heavens for us. We're rich. And I love this. He said, let him remember his misery no more. No more. The only time in this life when we can regard ourselves as as having no misery, when we look by faith to Christ, to him alone, to that which he has accomplished, to that which defines the true gospel of Christ crucified, which is his success. And when I see him hanging on that cross, God in flesh bleeding and dying for my sin. Oh, I just forget my misery. Got a knee ache. I got a bill coming due. Somebody in my family is sick. I got misery. He said, let him forget his misery. Drink that wine of Christ's glorious finished work, soothing to the soul. Oh, I'm telling you. We think about all these people around us, and they're in two categories mostly. They're the hard-set religionists, self-righteous like the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. And then this other group on the other hand, like that maniac of Gadara, just rough as a cob. But we have strong drink. No matter whether they're one or the other. God saves his people among them. And he does it by his precious, mighty, omnipotent gospel. I love his gospel. I love that it's the comfort of his true people. I love that it glorifies him. I love that it it stirs me. It it it's strong, but it soothes me. God bless you. I love you. Okay. Uh, all? No, no. Yeah, all. Lead us in the word of prayer for the feet meal in the back, please.